You're the resident on call, and a 21-year-old male is brought in with a feeling of stuck food in his throat after a steak dinner. He can't even swallow his own saliva. When asked where the problem swallowing is, he continually points to the center of his chest. Upon questioning, you discover that he has a history of asthma and atopic dermatitis. Based on your assessment, you realize that this is a food bolus obstruction and consult gastroenterology to do an upper endoscopy. The endoscopy, indeed, shows a food bolus, along with a number of other striking findings. Innumerable rings, a furrowed pattern of the esophagus, and white exudates. The clinical and endoscopic presentation in this patient is consistent with eosinophilic esophagitis, or EOE, an increasingly recognized condition that is considered to be asthma of the esophagus, due to the epithelial changes that lead to problems in swallowing. Today, our patient has EOE, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast made by medical residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is titled Atopy, Asthma, and Dysphagia. Oh my, an approach to eosinophilic esophagitis. Time for our minute physiology. Although the pathogenesis of EOE has not been fully elucidated, there are several hallmarks of the disease that are understood. Normally, the esophagus lacks eosinophils. Eosinophils are typically involved in immunologic defense against multicellular parasites, but are also implicated in both allergies and asthma. When eosinophils are increased in the peripheral blood to more than 5 times 10 to the 8 per liter, this leads to a condition called eosinophilia. For more information on this topic, please see our podcast number 150 titled A Granular Problem, How to Approach Eosinophilia. As we said, there are typically no eosinophils in the esophagus. Eosinophils, however, may be present in a limited number of conditions, including EOE and gastroesophageal reflux disease, or GERD. One of the leading theories for the presence of eosinophils in the esophagus is that they are a product of an immune process among individuals with sensitivity to environmental antigens. This is why patients with EOE are often sent for allergy testing, and why it is recommended that they avoid certain foods. We will return to this topic in the section on management. The recruitment of eosinophils in the esophagus is also why we see white exudates, as mentioned in the episode's opening. Now back to the physiology of EOE. In addition to it being considered an allergic reaction of the esophagus to an environmental trigger, one of the other major components that drives the pathogenesis of EOE is adaptive T-cell immunity mediated by both T-helper type, or Th2 cells, and interleukins 5, 13, and 15. Normally, adaptive T-cell immunity targets antigens that are foreign to the body. In EOE and other allergic-type reactions, however, there is a misrecognition of harmless antigens, thereby eliciting a response. Now let's get back to talking about EOE's clinical and endoscopic characteristics, and more importantly, an approach. EOE typically, but not always, presents as a young adult who has ongoing esophageal dysphagia. The condition is more commonly found in men than women. Be sure to differentiate between oropharyngeal and esophageal dysphagia. For more information on that approach, check out our episode Not So Difficult to Swallow. To briefly summarize, if your patient is pointing at his or her chest, telling you that the food feels stuck there, think esophageal dysphagia. On the other hand, if they can't initiate swallowing and or there is a problem of food getting stuck immediately after swallowing, Think oropharyngeal dysphagia. Before delving into the patient's history, however, 
rule out whether there is a food bolus impaction. Although most impactions resolve on their own without need for intervention, endoscopy is required in 10 to 20% of cases. Signs and symptoms of food bolus impaction involve acute dysphagia, choking, hypersalivation, and regurgitation. If the patient cannot protect their airway, then more urgent intervention requiring suctioning may be needed. After ensuring that our patient is stable and doesn't require immediate endoscopic intervention, the next step is to delve into the history. Look to characterize the frequency of these symptoms and duration, as well as for any obvious triggers, food or otherwise. Also, on past medical history, ask about the classical atopic triad of eczema, asthma, and hay fever. Inquire about reflux symptoms and use of proton pump inhibitors. Physical examination may not be especially valuable, but it may reveal features of atopic dermatitis, such as erythema, oozing, and dry skin. You may also hear diffuse wheezes if there is underlying asthma. Going back to our patient at the beginning of the episode, they had esophageal dysphagia highlighted by them pointing to their chest, as well as a history of atopy. Great, you've made the diagnosis of EOE. Well, have you? Not quite yet. According to the 2018 Updated International Consensus Diagnostic Criteria for Eosinophilic Esophagitis, a diagnosis requires all of the following three criteria. Symptoms related to esophageal dysfunction, eosinophil predominant inflammation on esophageal biopsy, requiring greater than or equal to 15 eosinophils per high power field, and the exclusion of other causes of esophageal eosinophilia. What kind of other conditions should we be thinking of in our differential diagnosis? Remember we just talked about reflux and PPIs? Well, GERD can be a cause of esophageal eosinophilia, especially if left untreated. Other conditions to include in your differential are achalasia, infections, hypereosinophilic syndrome, pill esophagitis, and Crohn's disease with esophageal involvement. We'll talk more about differentiation of these conditions in the next section. All right, armed with your clinical suspicion of EOE and pending histology results, where else do you go with your workup? You'll want to order the following tests. First, a CBC may be helpful in determining if there is systemic infection, if there's leukocytosis, for example. About half of patients with EOE may also have eosinophilia, though it is unlikely to be greater than 50,000 eosinophils per microliter that can occur in hypereosinophilic syndrome. Otherwise, the key investigation to diagnose EOE is endoscopy. To remember the features of EOE on endoscopy, the mnemonic EREFS, which is also a scoring system, is helpful. These are exudates, rings, edema, furrows, and strictures. These individual features have low sensitivity, but high specificity of greater than 90%. Furthermore, upper endoscopy allows for biopsies to be taken, preferentially throughout the entire esophagus to aid the diagnosis, looking for that minimum cutoff of at least 15 eosinophils per high power field in at least one specimen. Returning to our differential diagnosis, endoscopy will be particularly helpful in ruling out other similar conditions. We've already talked about infection and hypereosinophilia syndrome, so now let's turn to the remaining conditions. First, GERD will lead to classic erosive esophagitis in the distal esophagus, rather than the aforementioned EREFS features. Second, achalasia will lead to a visible narrowing of the gastroesophageal junction, which does not occur in EOE. Third, Pill esophagitis caused by direct injury due to swallowed pills will typically demonstrate discrete ulceration or kissing ulcers in the mid-esophagus that do not occur in EOE. Finally, Crohn's disease with esophageal involvement causes ulceration and gastric inflammation, 
neither of which occurs in EOE. Time to turn to treatment. Treatment for EOE can be summarized by the three D's mnemonic of diet, drugs, and dilatation. Overall, the aim of therapy is to minimize the amount of allergic irritation that occurs from known food triggers. Food allergy testing is recommended to target the individual culprit foods. In terms of dietary management, there are a number of approaches that can be effective. Starting from the least to most intensive, a four-food elimination diet that removes milk and dairy products, egg, wheat, and soy, is typically initiated first, followed by testing-directed elimination diet guided by allergic testing. And then there is the elemental diet, wherein all solid foods are eliminated and the patient is placed on an amino acid-based formula. Most patients will respond well to a four-food elimination diet. That is the first D of treating EOE. The second D, drugs, relies primarily on both PPIs and topical swallowed glucocorticoids. PPIs are used because there can be overlap between GERD and EOE. A once-daily-dosed PPI will usually do the trick and can be titrated up in frequency to twice-daily for effect. The second type of pharmacologic therapy to consider is topical glucocorticoids, with budesonide and fluticasone as the most commonly used agents, which have been shown to reduce the number of esophageal eosinophils. Fluticasone propionate is administered as a spray into the mouth, and budesonide is administered as oral viscous slurry or as an oral dispersible tablet. As with any use of steroids, patients should be counseled on the usual side effects of topical glucocorticoids, notably thrush, although this can be avoided with the use of large-volume spacer with metered dose inhaler, MDI, and oral rinsing. The third D, esophageal dilatation, is typically reserved for patients with esophageal rings or strictures. The risk of this intervention is mucosal tear and or esophageal perforation, which are higher in EOE than in rings or strictures in other conditions. Therefore, it should only be attempted after a failed course of drug therapy. Did you know the first case report of EOE dates back to 1978, published in the journal Gastroenterology? It was reported as a concomitant condition with achalasia, another esophageal disorder that can lead to dysphagia. Since then, there has been an explosion in the number of cases, leading some to speculate whether it has increased in incidence or whether there is simply greater detection of it. Currently, the jury is out on this question, and future research may help shed some light. That's all for today. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled Atopy, Asthma, and Dysphagia, Oh My, an Approach to Eosinophilic Esophagitis. This episode was written by Dr. Michael Scafidi, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Samir Grover, gastroenterologist, and Dr. Don Thiwanka Wijeratni, general internist. The Internet Work series was created by Allison Lai and is executively managed by Zara Morali and Leah Karianopoulos. This episode was recorded and produced by Leah Karianopoulos. Theme song by Lakshmi Santhamoan. If you like this podcast, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out www.theinternetwork.com for associated resources and infographics. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.